0: Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a STOA Mars Hill podcast. I'm Raymond Docopil.
1: And I'm Sophie Klomperens.
0: And I'm John Luke Dokopil. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast hosted by STOA alumni, where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this episode, we'll be discussing the 2016 Japanese animated film, A Silent Voice. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strung. Before we begin this episode, I have a slight disclaimer to make. So when we were recording this, I accidentally recorded from my computer microphone instead of my external microphone. So for the rest of this episode, if uh, my voice appears a little bit muffled to you, don't worry, you're not going deaf. That's just the way I sound. So it shouldn't bother you unless it does, in which case you're out of luck. So sorry about that. Anyway, on with the show. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators. Today we are joined with a special guest, my brother, John Luke Dokapil.
2: Woo! Hello, everybody.
0: Uh, John Luke is uh, a student at the University of Washington right now, and he is an expert in uh, Japanese. He's double majoring in Japanese right now, and um, so we thought it would be good to invite him on the podcast for this episode. And because this movie concerns um, a character who is deaf, John Luke is also a good person to consult about that because, because he has taken a class on deaf culture. That is D-E-A-F, not death, not deaf culture the deaf culture. We always feel like we need to clarify that. Um, And so, Jean-Luc, why don't you introduce yourself and talk about a little bit about how you became uh, interested in studying Japanese and how you became acquainted with this film.
2: Um, Well, I I believe the, the scientific term is certified weeaboo. Um, (laughs) I, um, I became interested... I actually used to heavily dislike anime and all the, the Japanese media. And then uh, I was introduced to a, a couple of Studio Ghibli films, as I'm sure a lot of people have... Uh, that was kind of the first the first kind of Japanese media um, to, to watch. Um, and then I started getting into um, some of the movies, like Your Name... And then um, I was shown a silent voice. And I, I, I had watched the first half of this film in the library at my community college. <laughs> and then I, I had to stop, go to class, and I came home to finish it. And the entire second half of the film just wrecked me for that day. I was like crying. <laughs> I was like so confused as to why I was like feeling all of these emotions. And it's one of the reasons why I love this film that um, it made me feel um, these different kinds of emotions that other films haven't yet. Um, and from then, I, um, I started becoming really interested in, in a lot of the Japanese culture. I um, started to really enjoy Japanese music. And so I decided to, um, to study it when I went to college. And that, um, that has been one of the best choices that I've made. I've really enjoyed learning more about Japanese culture and uh, learning more about the language. And it's been really great going back and watching A Silent Voice um, now with that newfound knowledge and being able to understand um, better um, a lot of the things that I was confused about before.
0: Yeah. So we're going to be consulting you on that because Sophie is going to have lots of questions. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So, so Sophie, you talked about when you first watched Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away, you didn't really like it that much. Um, So you you were a little bit weirded out. Uh, What was your impression of this film?
1: So so first of all I have to be completely honest Studio Ghibli generally just the art style I it, it frightens me a little I have a little <laughs> bit of a phobia of we weir- like cartoons or animations that are a little deformed in some way or that are expressive in the sense that they are very much not like real life and that thing that sort of art style can be frightening to me sometimes this one didn't do that for me um and it's really beautiful in a lot of ways and i was i was mesmerized basically the whole time i think maybe the best way though to describe how i felt about it at the end i was watching it last night because i prepare well ahead of time obviously (laughs) um I was watching yeah. it last night with my boyfriend, and he said at the end that he's, he sort of felt like it was hard to have thoughts about it because it felt like the film was operating with a different thought process than he was used to. And so mm. it, I agree with that. I think that that's sort of how I felt, too, that I it was really beautiful to watch. And there are lots of individual moments or things that I think are really interesting, but I wasn't sure that any of the conclusions I was coming to were correct <laughs> or were the conclusions I was supposed to be coming coming to because it felt like I was approaching it from a certain mindset or a certain thought process that wasn't correct for the art form or for the culture. So I, I really don't know what to say about it. Maybe I'll have things to say <laughs> as we keep talking, <laughs> but right now it just is interesting to me, and I want to know about it.
0: Yeah, the film is, like, almost three hours long. I think it's, like, two hours, 45 minutes or something. And so we're really not going to succeed in covering everything in this film, for sure. And even in my own notes, I had a lot more difficulty consolidating this episode than I've had with previous ones. And I think part of it is because of the reasons that you were just talking about. Here is that it is kind of presents a worldview and a perception of the world, which is very different from what we're used to. So, I'm gonna talk, we're gonna dwell a little bit more on this particular artistic medium, but then, you know, I hope to go a little bit into the plot. So, this movie deals with a lot of very serious themes it deals with suicide, it deals with disability, um, and it deals with bullying, and it's categorized as a drama. So the first question is why why did the author decide to make a manga comic and later an animated film with such heavy thematic material? So what is it what what was the reasoning behind that decision and what can you do with this medium that you can't do elsewhere?
2: I feel like um, I feel like especially in Japan, where, honestly, the two main, I guess there's also light novels, but I feel like the two most popular mediums of, like, and the most popular art forms are um, manga and anime, and I think it's different from the idea of comic books and animated films uh, here in, um, like, in America, uh, where they often take a much more um less serious kind of I don't know themes to them. Whereas in in Japan, because those are like the two main forms of media, they there's little to no distinction. There is comedy, there is horror, there is, you know, these more heavy themes, and they're all within manga and anime. They the fact that that's, you know, chose these you know, mediums to present its story um is very i think expected in terms of uh if an author has a story that they want to tell um the first often the first thing that uh, comes to mind is write a manga. but uh, there's also light novels, which are the typical novels, just words on paper, um which do have a very high level of popularity uh, in Japan, but I think also, by putting some sort of visual to your story, I think does a really good job of pairing a lot of weight with the words. I think it does a really good job of just yeah adding more weight to uh, your story.
0: Yeah. And, you know, for me, I grew up loving Pixar movies. That was like a huge part of my childhood. I was a huge Pixar nerd. and. You know, I was really interested in computer animation, and I have a whole book, like a whole stack of um, Pixar movies, uh, like the uh, that compiles all their art and stuff. So I was a huge nerd about that. It, but until recently, you know, when they after they came out with Cars two, I kind of fell out of love with them, and <laughs> I was a little bit disenchanted for a while because, you know, I just thought that they, they you know they weren't they weren't up to snuff anymore and around that time is when i came around haya miyazaki and i was a little bit weirded out at first but the more i watched it the more entranced i became with it because it opened my mind to what you could actually do with animation Um, and it made me realize you know yeah, animation doesn't have to be just a comedy or a kid's film. And that's exactly what most people, especially Western audiences, assume. Um, and there are a lot of things that you can do with animated film that you can't do with others. And particularly a 2D animated film, not a 3D animated film. I think one of the differences is is that in a 3D animated film, everything is an object. It's Well, because it's 3D. And that's not the case for a 2D animated film. In a 2D animated film, everything is a symbol. uh, Because that's what 2D art does. Um, And that enables you to explore things that are more metaphysical, spiritual, emotional, or abstract. Because you're not dealing with the physical world. At least you don't really see the world in a physical way. Or as in as a physical way, if that makes any sense. And that was really conducive to this particular film because it is very much a, an introspective movie. It, it deals very much with the kind of inner emotional journey of each one of the characters. And what each one of these characters in this film are, are trying to, to uncover is to understand what is going on in the soul of the other person. You know, the original, the Latin word for soul is animus, which I don't think is a coincidence. And, I, you know, I, I don't think, you know, that's just an arbitrary linguistic connection there. I think that there's something about animation which allows us to look into people's souls. Um, so with that, let's go into a little bit of, of the plot here. John, do you want to talk about the plot, or do you want me to do that? Um, sure, I can talk about it. Um, so
2: the the story starts off with Ishida Shoya's attempted suicide, where he's about to take his life by jumping off of a bridge. Uh, but as kind of a formality, he visits uh, decides to visit um, Shoko and return uh, this notebook that he's been holding on to. Um, And as he's walking to her place, we get um, a flashback into their first encounter um, what Shoya and Shoko's um, interactions were together as a kid. And uh, they, and more or less, Shoya is the one spearheading uh, the bullying of Shoko. And all of these other characters that are around them you have uh, Ueno, Kawaii. Who uh, kind of don't take as much of an active role in the bullying of Shoko, um, but do nothing to stop it. And then, after uh, Shoya starts to take the bullying a little too far, uh, he rips out Shoko's hearing aids at one point um, and she starts to bleed from her ear. Uh, after this, um, the School's principal gets involved and forces Shoya to kind of come clean. Uh, it's, I feel like it's important to note that um, like Shoya, he starts to like want to admit what he was doing wrong, and then the teacher just cuts him off. The teacher uh, t- like forces him to come clean. And as a result, um, all of his classmates turn on him essentially uh, in kind of a self-defense. And so then what became Shoya being the one kind of leading the group in bullying Shoko becomes the one bullied. He becomes an outcast of his own. Everybody then turns on him. And um, this resulted in a lot of the mental health issues that he has as he grows older, being completely alone. Um, He realizes the mistake he made in uh, bullying, but that, to him, means he doesn't deserve to interact with anybody. He doesn't deserve to um, have any meaningful relationships. He just closes himself off. The movie does a really good job of kind of showing the metaphorical closing off of his ears and lowering his head um, because he no longer looks people in the eyes. Um, So... That uh, kind of uh, flashback kind of shapes, uh, helps shape, uh, show the shape of his character as he goes to bring this notebook to Shoko. All right,
0: let me, uh, let me, let me uh, add a little thing in there just to for audiences who may not have watched the movie. Uh, so Shoko is the girl, Shoya is the boy, Shoko is deaf, um, and they met in elementary school. And this is like a really interesting situation that you see happening, unfolding with these group of kids, because when Shoya first encounters Shoko, he's a little bit kind of weirded out by her, mainly by the fact that she can't hear. And that's something that, as a kid who is kind of wild and a troublemaker and doesn't really want any kind of responsibility doesn't really have any kind of empathy for her and to any to, if anything else she's just kind of like an interesting irregularity which he you know just doesn't want to accept and that results in him bullying her and and then that becomes infectious and, and everyone else is participating in that So before we go further into the plot here, let's talk a little bit about this idea of bullying because it becomes a huge theme. And John, maybe you could talk a little bit about the way bullying works in Japanese culture. Um, Obviously, bullying is a ubiquitous problem for everyone, but it seems that bullying here is a little bit different, um, at least in its quality, than the way that we typically see it in you know american schools or even like you know portrayed in typical uh american movies right where there's always the archetypal school bully you know and he's kind of just like the villain um but this seems to be much more complex and interrelated so what is bullying like in japanese culture
2: well i think it's important to note the more um, collectivist mindset that the japanese have there is a lot of focus on uniformity, uh, like especially in schools, um, they all wear the school uniforms actually until relatively recently, all, all school kids were required to have black hair. And if you did not have um, black hair, like perhaps you had more brownish hair, they, um, some schools would force you to dye your hair black uh, to fit in with everybody. And because of this, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Shoko stands out so much is because she has something that does not fit in with everybody else. And because of this, I feel like the bullying is a lot more group against one, like literally the majority against one, not um, what you often see um, with bullying in American schools, which is just one typically typically stronger, but not necessarily bully, just kind of dogging on, like, one person. This is more of a group against one person, simply because they they stand out. Um, because standing out is something that's definitely frowned upon in the Japanese education system.
1: I have a, I have a question about that. Um, so one thought that I had while watching it is that... Shoya is a lot more um, he it seems like he's more open about his bullying of her. Um, whereas especially, and I think part of it is because the other people who are bullying her, uh, a lot of them are girls, and their their attitude toward Shoko is more uh, they're kind of pushing her away and it's a little more passive aggressive. And it's not so straightforward, not so obvious. And it seemed, at least to me, like his bullying of her was a lot more open. Um, and it was clear what he was doing. And maybe that partially boils down to the fact that that's the way that boys tend to show aggression versus how girls tend to show aggression. And that goes across cultures. Um, but that made me like be more sympathetic toward him <laughs> later on. Um the fact that he's so obvious about what he's doing, that he's open about it, and then that his repentance is also open, whereas all these other people also bully her, but their their guilt process is different from his and not so open, and they're kind of pushing it down in a way that he doesn't. Um, do you think that I'm reading that incorrectly, <laughs> or what?
2: No, there was um, there was a commentary that I. Um that I listened to that I really liked um, that was um, really talking about one of the big themes of this film, which was communication. And he was pointing out how um, Shoko had attempted to communicate with Shoya in many ways, whether it be the notebook, whether it be Japanese sign language and Shoya failed to understand that all the attempted communication because he only really knows one way of communicating. And if you look at the way he interacts with his other guy friends, you know, he's constantly, you know, like putting them in chokeholds or, you know, giving them massive wedgies. Um, He's very physical with the way he communicates. And I think in the way that he bullies Sholko, um, he's really trying to communicate with her um, and he's doing that all the wrong ways absolutely the wrong ways um, but I think the reason why he's so open about it is because that is the way uh, he communicates
0: yeah and so this this situation tends put plants I think a, a something inside of Shoya which, becomes kind of his driving force and there's something a little bit i would say almost almost demonic about it in the sense that it's not really like a a very positive thing it's actually visually represented and that's what i think is really interesting is you know it it's visually represented as kind of these black squiggly squally you know things you know what i'm talking about um, I don't actually I think they, they do that more in the manga version than they do in the in the movie, but they go inside his mind and there's kind of like this just bubbling blackness, uh that is kind of representing a lot of his, you know, self disgust, uh self loathing and guilt. Um, and then we have another visual representation going on with the exes, and that's something that's portraying uh, the world from Shoko's uh, Shoya's perspective, um, and that is well, what that represents is him actually shutting out all the different, all the rest of the world. That's something that I think is really interesting thematically when we start looking at the characters, particularly the relationship between Shoka and Shoya. Um, it's implied that there is some kind of connection between them from the very beginning. Uh, one of them is Shoko and Shoya both have the same nickname, Shouchan, um, which is a kinship which Shoya immediately rejects. Um, but there's also characteristic similarities because, in a weird, not necessarily parallel, but I would say like perpendicular, they're complementary because. Sho Shoya shuts people out visually. You know he doesn't want to look at people. Um, whereas Shoko Shoko can't hear people. Um, so there's this you know this visual blindness versus an auditory blindness, so to speak, um, which kind of puts them in a situation where they're almost characters that were. I don't want to say made for each other, <laughs> but there's something that there's uh, some, some kind of like symmetry between them. Although... Did anyone else kind of get that sense?
1: Um, Just to insert something here, and I, I might be completely wrong about this, but what you're saying about the sort of parallels of him having a visual, so there's the Xs, which obviously are a very visual symbol. And also I have questions because I don't 100% understand the X symbol, but his visual blindness and then her not being able to hear it seems like he has a hearing issue too um because and again i might be wrong about this please correct me if i am but in the first scene where they show the x's where there's kind of the time jump a little bit and he does his monologue about this is why i ended up alone is because i alienated people and then he's in the classroom and everybody has the x's and he is hearing them and he's hearing them say things like, oh, yeah, like he's a bully or stay away from him, that sort of thing. Like they're all talking about him. And he it seems like he sort of shuts that out, like he stops listening. And then in the last scene of the movie, when all the exes finally fall off for the last time, he hears them again. And they're not talking about him like he, he's he, they are They're not saying negative things about him. And the way that I interpreted that, or what I thought maybe was going on, was that the first time he, they have the exes and he's listening to them, he's projecting what he imagines that they are saying about him. That he believes they say certain things, and so he chooses to cover his ears and stop listening. And then in the final scene, when he finally decides to listen again, he realizes that they're not, that maybe they never were, that what he thinks everyone else is saying about him is a projection of how he feels about himself because of what he knows about his past. Um, so it seems like he, I don't know if she has a visual issue, but it seems like he has both a a sight and a, a hearing issue. Does that make sense?
0: Well, I don't know. if It's a physical hearing issue. It's definitely a mental hearing issue in the sense, and that's what I think is, mm-hmm. I think you should intru- trust your interpretive skills more than you're giving yourself credit for because I think you're absolutely right about that. Um <laughs> I think he's definitely he's emotionally shutting off all these people in his life. Um and that's represented through the exes. And when he looks at the camera, looks and pans back and forth at all these different people and he's just imagining what he thinks that they're saying about them and they're and they're always going to be negative because, um, you know, he he's got the reputation he knows they think that he's a bully and he's really internalized that so that's that's all that he can see himself in doing um but what i wanted to point out is that you see that this this desire or this attempt in the film to get inside the inner minds of the characters happens not just with Sho, shoya but also with shoko in different ways um so we're trying to understand what's going on inside of Shoya's mind. And that's represented visually. Um, and we're also trying to understand what's going inside Shoko's mind. And that's represented, uh, au- um, au- uh, what do you would say? Auditorily? Audibly? Um, well, it's represented <laughs> in the music. And when you look at, the, like the music is, is done with a piano is a, a lot of the score is a piano. And it was recorded by actually putting the microphone inside the piano so that you can hear the mechanics of the pedals in the piano as uh, when you play it. So did you, did you, I mean, did you hear that, you know, when you're listening to the score, it's very, very quiet, right? And it's so soft, but you can hear the, the soft pedal noises of the insides of the piano.
1: I didn't pick up on that except for every now and then to think, wow, this music is really pretty in a way that's different from other movies. And I don't know what it is. So it's very cool to know.
0: So I would say that, and I don't know if this is like an objective interpretation, but part of the the use of the piano music is a way of representing through sound the kind of way that Shoko experiences the world. um, Because she experiences... Uh, he, she experiences sound internally through her body as you would when you're deaf because when you're deaf you can still hear things but everything's muted because you experience sound as vibration and you can see ways that the filmmakers are trying to look into that like I think one of the fireworks scenes right there's the fireworks and then the camera cues down to show Shoko's tea and you see the the ripples in the tea, and then Shoko kind of closes her eyes. And that's a visual cue of showing us, helping us understand, okay, Shoko is, is enjoying the fireworks, and she's enjoying the sound of the fireworks by feeling it, feeling the vibrations. Um, and that's also what the music does, too. So that, I think, are all things that play into this role of, you know, what is it between Shoko and Shoyo, uh, Shoya that sort of brings them together?
1: Uh, one thought that I have about that is, um, so experiencing this movie not knowing anything about it ahead of time. When the movie started, and I knew all I knew about it was that it was about someone who bullies a deaf girl, something about that. So, I thought in the beginning, oh, I think probably, just based on my understanding of other stories, based on my previous experience, it seems like probably this is going to be a movie about someone who bullies a deaf girl, and then learns his lesson, and makes amends, and then it ends up okay. And it quickly uh, became obvious that that was not what the movie was about, because the whole part of him bullying her is all exposition, so... It's not about him learning that what he did was wrong. He really starts the story knowing that what he did was wrong. So it's not about that. And then as I realized that that wasn't true, I thought, oh, this is probably a story then about him trying to redeem himself and her being closed off to him. And then eventually she like forgives him and then everything is okay that way. But then they become friends relatively quickly. And so, I don't know, I just... This isn't an interpretation, it's just a statement that early on, or maybe up until halfway through the movie, I was realizing that what I expected the story to be was not what it was. That it was about issues that were a lot more complicated and more difficult to resolve than just forgiveness, which is already complicated, or learning how to treat other people well or learning how to be friends it deals with all of those things but it actually deals with something a lot deeper than that because that's not yeah. all that the story so
0: is. let's hold that thought let's move a little bit forward in in the plot so there we start with elementary school then we move to uh shoko and shoya as a young adult shoya is about to commit suicide um he goes to shoko to make amends um, but instead of simply making amends, he decides to be friends. Uh, he asks to be friends, and he can't understand why he does that. Um, and that's, he's like, well, this is, this is weird, I don't know why I'm doing this, but somehow it happens, and this at extending his hand in friendship is something that sets in motion a chain of events which he doesn't fully understand himself and maybe is outside of his control, mm-hmm. but He begins exploring what the idea of what a friend is and almost, I would say almost by providence, a whole bunch of friends just kind of come flooding in simply by him asking this one question. I think it all starts from this. And I think that this is part of like the relationship between me first opening up myself and suddenly, you know, all of these other things start, just start happening around me. Um, So he first befriends, uh, Shoko, um, and then he comes across. He makes another friend, Tomohiro Nagatsuka. Did I say that right? More or less. So he's the short, chubby guy with the curly hair <laughs> who becomes Shoya's first friend. And of course, he's kind of an outcast, not very cool kid. But you know, what do you mean? He's, he's awesome. <laughs> 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 he, he's he's an outcast like. You know, not considered cool by other people. I mean, he's short, which makes him different, right? And that's another thing that, yeah. You know, I'm saying John Luke is is perceived (laughs) the way he is perceived. He's he's an outsider. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Okay. So he becomes friends with him. Um, He becomes friends with uh, Miki, the girl from his elementary, his childhood friend. Um, she's the girl with the blonde hair. And he becomes friends with Sahara. That's the girl with the short hair. Um, she's the only one who's learned sign language. He becomes friends with uh, Nauka Winnow. And Winnow is really interesting because she really participated in the bullying a lot. Um, and she also has kind of like a raging crush on him. So this becomes a problem because when all of these friends come back together and they become... Uh, kind of this friend group there's a lot of tension that continues to persist and this kind of goes into what you were saying is this story doesn't go in the direction you were expecting to they don't just become friends and forgive and forget a lot of these problems that they had during high school continue to exist and they don't exactly know how to solve the problem um and so this happens in a moment where you know okay so so, so Shoya is beginning to think, "Oh, you know what, friends, I can do this. Maybe things are all going to be all right again." Um, but then things kind of turn south again when Miki kind of exposes the fact that Shoya used to bully everyone, uh, bully, bully Shoko. And when she exposes that, people are not very happy with that. They're not willing to say, "Oh, yeah." you've changed, it's okay now, Um, but they all meet together on the bridge and they have this conversation and nobody is willing to admit that they did something wrong.
1: It was all your fault
0: to begin with.
1: Still, Hashiba said that I should forgive
0: you if you apologize to Nishimiya. Wait a
1: second. That's messed up. What right do we have to criticize Ishida over
0: it? We? You've got it wrong now.
2: Unlike me, you went out of your way to bully
0: Nishimiya. Don't lump me in with you. So let's zero in a little bit on that. Like, what exactly is happening there? Um, when I first watched that scene, I think I thought I think this is kind of the center problem of the story is this scene on the bridge where they all meet up and they talk about what they did to Shoko and who was guilty. And I think that what is happening on this bridge is the key to understanding what is happening, where the central conflict is.
2: I would say um, one of the really interesting things about this scene is um, how each character, um, where each character puts their blame, like, Uh, Shoya, of course, blames himself for the bullying that he did. And then Ueno um, blames Shoko for just being there. That she was the one, the anomaly that made um, all of these friendships fall apart. And then there's Kawai who thinks she herself is blameless in all of the interactions and that Shoya was the one who was the one who was responsible for the bullying. Uh, and then there's Sahara who was more or less scared of all of them and um, blames herself for running away from the situation back in elementary school. Um, so I think what a lot of this tension comes from is where each of the characters can't come to an um, agreement as to um, who was at fault. And I think that's... I think each of them are more or less right. And you understand what happened when you put all of them together, that there wasn't one person who was solely at fault. Like, Kawaii, who didn't really do anything to bully Shoko, You can't say that she was blameless because she did absolutely nothing to stop it. And you have Ueno who is right that had Shoko not come to the school, none of these these friendships wouldn't have fallen apart in the way that they did. Um, And you have all of these things that are are true and um, why this bridge scene I think is really important is that none of them, they were all internalizing uh, who they were blaming, uh, which was causing a lot of that tension um, within the group that um, Raymond was talking about. And this is just the moment where it all gets let out. And it's kind of funny, well, funny, kind of sad, but um, Shulko has no idea what's going on this entire conversation. She is just kind of standing there, not really understanding what's going on as she watches. All of these people, one by one, just leave the bridge, and she doesn't really understand that Shoya is uh, single-handedly kicking, uh, kicking out all of his friends.
1: I also think it's so important that it happens on a bridge, and a lot of really important scenes in the movie happen on a bridge. Um, And I think part of what that's visually representing is the fact that for any of these people to, that that the correct action (laughs) in all of their lives is both to take responsibility for what they did, like their part in the thing that happened, and to move forward and to do good with the knowledge that that happened and that that can't be undone, but to to work and to change. And that that visually, I think, could be thought of as crossing the bridge, like leaving the bridge. And for a lot of these people, because they don't want to take responsibility, they're just kind of hanging out on the bridge, which is why I think it's partially important that they all have this conversation on the bridge. And that the first scene of the movie is, uh, show you on the bridge. (laughs) And that his response isn't the same. It's not to not take responsibility. Very early on, he says, I know what I did, and I know I need to take responsibility for it.
0: And he actually uses I think the that's... word sins there. You know, I want to take yeah. responsibility for my sins. <sighs>
2: so I realized realize that, that your sins always come, you. come
0: back to bite you.
2: But so and
0: okay, that I had to bear that cross and the punishment that came with it.
1: Right. But that his his response isn't the correct one either because he wants to in in despair because of what he did and because of the sins that he has to take responsibility for he wants to kill himself which i think arguably is not not a lot better than just not taking responsibility at all it is a step forward but it's not crossing the bridge either none of them are crossing the bridge He wants to jump off of it and everyone else just wants to hang out there. Whereas really the only way forward is to leave the bridge. And I think that's why it matters that that scene happens on the bridge and that so many scenes in the movie happen on the bridge. And feeding the carp happens from the bridge. I don't know what's going on with feeding the fish, I have to say. But I think probably it matters that it happens on a bridge.
0: (laughs) I really want to talk about feeding the carp. Uh, Well, okay. Besides the fact that It just on a simple, on the simplest level, we could just look at it from a storytelling point of view, you know, that's how they meet. And she likes feeding the carps. That's, you know, (laughs) Shoko likes feeding carps. That's like, so in that sense, there's not really a whole lot complicated about it that's going on. Um, So they just, that's something that they have in common and they bond over and they just like to pass the time sitting on the bridge and throwing bread to the carps. Um, but also I think that there could be something deeper going on there symbolically, because that is also something that happens on the bridge. Right. And because this is Mars Hill, we have to bring in (laughs) Christology into this somehow. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I don't think obviously this was anything intentional, but I think that there is something interesting that this is a movie that's fundamentally about sin And the need for redemption. And one of the things that bonds these two main characters together is standing on a bridge and feeding fish. Mm. Um, Now, bread. Feeding bread to fish. So, the symbol of bread and the symbol of fish are both very important things (laughs) um, in the Gospels. Uh, Yeah. You should have seen God. Oh,
2: I know. I
1: understand.
2: I've never put this much thought into feeding the fish before. This Listen, is very that's interesting. That's why you're talking to, to English majors. When
0: we're, we're, we're putting all of these different themes together on, on the abstract level, and these different ideas being united, um, we have a situation where, okay, so when we look at the symbol of fish, you know, when Jesus says, you're going to be fishers of men, right? We're going out and we're feeding, the the or spreading the gospel to all nations. Um, the idea of feeding becomes present there, and the metaphor that humanity are the is the fish, you know that we're uh, that we're re- trying to reach, and also the body of Christ which we are bestowing upon them. They're participating in those symbols unconsciously when they're feeding the fish on the bridge. Um, they're giving it to the fish, but they're not giving it to themselves, let's say. They're not partaking in the bread themselves. And I think that's part of the problem is that they have the problem of sin that they're trying to atone for, but they don't really know how redemption Mm. works. Um, And so that I think, so I think that's, that's a question that I think really gets to the heart of the matter. And it's the heart of, I think, the source of self hatred, and you know this kind of suicide drive because suicide is a big theme in this movie. So I think that true redemption is not a mere case of forgive and forget. The characters in this film know that, and their their attempts to atone for their sins are not sufficient. But they don't necessarily know what true redemption look looks like, um, and so in what ways do the attempt to and fail to redeem themselves? And why are their attempts insufficient?
1: So, so one thing at least, um, Shoya, when he saves Shoko, so when she's about to jump and he, he grabs her and he has this whole, not his life flashing before his eyes moment, but this whole realization of everything that he should have done that he didn't do. Um, and one of the things, if I'm remembering correctly, that he says almost first off is, did I ever actually apologize for what I did? Um And that's that's the first thing that he says that he should have done wrong. I have some <laughs> I have some thoughts about that moment and how he realizes what he should have done, but that was not the question, so I will refrain from talking about that until later. But that's the first thing, is I think he goes to her and kind of assumes that she understands that what he did was wrong and doesn't actually address it. It kind of stays in his peripheral vision and in hers because he kind of assumes that it can just be water under the bridge and maybe they can move forward from it and then it still kind of remains a sticking point. So failing to address it head on, what happened in the past, I think is the first mistake that he makes in trying to redeem himself.
2: I also think that the the idea of uh, failure of to of like proper atonement also is very evident um, in the two instances where Shoko jumps off the bridge to to grab her notebook that has fallen into the water, um, and you see the first time that Shoya reaches out his hand to catch her and fails. To, to catch her. And then there is the second instance where Shoko and Shoya are on a little summer vacation to some modern art place where Shoya starts uh, or falls down and starts like sliding down this this concrete um, like incline slab, slab thing. <laughs> <laughs> and you have uh, Shoko who, reaches out her hand to grab Shoya and again fails to do so. And I think that's, you know, representative of them not properly properly dealing with the, the shortcomings and the problems that they've uh, that have been present. They've all tr- they've tried to solve solve these issues um, and have been going about it the wrong way and only does, the the most important time when shoya uh, catches shoko from jumping off of the balcony is he able to catch her and he starts to approach these these issues from the right direction
0: right and okay so that's really an important like a pivotal point there is the suicide scene so let's backtrack and ask okay what exactly drove us to this point um, what were some of these the the these kind this kind of overwhelming convergence of circumstances that drive Shoko to the point where she feels like she needs to end her life?
1: I would like to volunteer that I have no idea <laughs> and that I was very confused <laughs> um the one so. I after we had watched the movie I expressed that question that I had I really didn't know why she would try to kill herself at that point mm-hmm. um and I'm going to give my boyfriend credit for this analysis because it was not mine and I think this might be starting to get there but what he was saying is that she seems like a character who is more concerned about what other people think or how other people are doing than she is with how she herself is doing. And that it... it the, her apologizing for everything. And even when she didn't do... That sort of thing. Um, and that when she... That everything in her life... Doesn't have to be going wrong. For her to have a motivation... To want to kill herself. That for, for Shoya... Killing himself would be an act of self-hatred. And it would have to do with his own internal state. And that... For her suicide might be actually more of an expression of her concern for other people and not for her own state but other than that i have no idea
2: yeah i mean she says as much um with another scene on the bridge um after shoya uh, wakes up from the hospital when she's explaining that she thought it would be better for everybody else if she just disappeared and you um and after like after seeing all of the the moments where she's spending time with her sister and Shoya, you go wait is she? She seems pretty happy, right? You see her smiling, um, and all that. And I think that's something I actually really appreciated about this movie is that it really goes to show, like how, how. The people who are depressed really put on an outward mask that everybody it always it seems fine. Everybody goes, you know, oh, I had no idea that they were they were going through this because they seemed happy. But something that I noticed after you know watching the film several times is that uh, Shoko uh, never smiles with her teeth. She's always this kind of forced kind of. Either a forced kind of grimace smile, or um, she's just you know smiling uh, with her lips, and only I guess twice, but it's kind of just once. Um, she only smiles with her teeth once, and that's at the end of the movie when um, when Oeno shows that she actually learned a little bit of Japanese sign language, albeit to tell her that she's an idiot, but um, mm-hmm. that that um, that kind of goes to show. Her growth as um, she's no longer kind of, you know, forcing herself to be happy for the sake of others. She's actually happy for her own sake, you know.
0: I want to dive a little bit deeper into the suicide drive, which I think is a really difficult uh, topic to deal with, but also not unique to Japan. Although I believe last time I checked, Japan has the highest suicide rate in the world. I don't know if that's still true. Um, But the U.S. is a pretty close runner-up for that. Um, And it seems to be a problem that has exponentially increased. And it's something that is very difficult for us to get behind, like, what is the mindset or the motivation behind it? And I think a lot of the ways that we actually deal with the problem is not really a good way to deal with them because we don't understand what is going on. And if I were to venture to say what I think is going on, um, I think that it has something to do with um, this problem of sin, the need for redemption, but also the need for some kind of sacrifice, um, a sacrifice that needs to be made. In my experience of, you know, studying stories, a lot of the times, some, at some point, a death becomes necessary, Right. You see that in any kind of story across, you know, all kind of cultures and places. And in primitive cultures before the time of Christ, you know, any kind of child sacrifice or human sacrifice was common and par for the course. Um, it was only unique in the, you know, the Judaic religion where sacrifice was actually done by in a substitutionary way by the blood of a lamb. And then the final substitutionary sacrifice of Christ um who was the perfect sacrifice, um, who died on behalf of everyone's sins, and that was sufficient to satisfy, satisfy the wrath of God, the wrath and God being perfection, the perfection that we all know exists and we need to somehow satisfy. Uh, we live in the modern world, right, in the 21st century in a developed country that's influenced by Christianity, and we don't And we don't make sacrifices anymore. We don't sacrifice lambs and we don't sacrifice humans and that's considered barbaric. And part of that is because we live in a culture that's influenced by Christianity and Christianity states that the sacrifice has already been made. Um, So, But we have this problem with these high schoolers in in Japan um, where they know that there's something wrong with the world and something wrong with themselves and they know that a sacrifice needs to be made of some sort, but they don't know what it is and they don't know how to deal with it. And I think that's what these characters are dealing with here. Um, and that's why people like um, Shoya and Shoko, they're the two people who are suicidal, unlike anyone else. Um, and Shoko, Shoya feels this way because he feels that nothing he's going to do is actually going to make things better and you know one of the characters yuzuru which unfortunately we didn't get into very much here says okay look just because you think you learned sign language and you know you try to be friends that makes you a good person and he's like well yeah you're right it, it doesn't you know the things that i do isn't isn't going to ultimately make up for what i did um because the past is still there and it you know it, it's not going to undo the damage and then we have Shoya, Shoko feeling, in a similar sense, a suicidal drive. And part of that is coming from this feeling inside of her that she is somehow guilty as well. And that's a really difficult thing to swallow. But that term co- goes back to Wino's accusation because Winnow accuses her of disrupting the friendship between you know, their friend group. Which is actually somewhat true. She is, she did disrupt things. And she did kind of cause a disequilibrium. I don't know if that's a word. In the kind of balance. Uh, uh, in the peace and stability. And, and so that kind of like. Sets in her heart. A kind of self-hatred. And self-loathing. And she feels like. You know. She needs to sacrifice herself. And, and that's kind of like, that's a very human, that's a very human urge. If you are the outsider, you're the outcast, you're the cause of all the problems in a given social group, then, you know, maybe you feel like you're the, the person who needs to sacrifice themselves in order to appease for the sins or, you know, that's causing it. You know this happens in cultures everywhere, right? If there's, if there's uh, any kind of turmoil, like like there's bad weather, right? Then you know in Polynesian cultures you have to sacrifice a virgin to the, to the volcano or something, and like that's going to appease the the wrath of the gods and make everything better. And I think that's the human tendency which is going behind uh, Shoko's suicide. And what I think is so interesting about this film is because it, these forces which drive her to this point where she's committing suicide come to a head, and Shoya comes in and essentially substitutes himself. And I think that that is what turns things around. He actually acts as a substitutionary sacrifice, albeit not intentionally, but she, he pulls her up and by f- nature of physics pulls himself down because uh, he can't pull pull her up without pulling himself down. And by mm-hmm. doing that, he falls into water and blood is shed and he descends into a coma and then he wakes up again. And one of the things that he says when he wakes up is... Shoya to Shoko is I want you to help me live and that's the turn that changes everything now Mm -hmm. everything is going to be cast in a new light we have a paradigm shift and instead of having to feeling the need to pay for the pain with death we're going to say I'm choosing to live in spite of the pain
1: well I also so To to jump back to the scene I think your analysis of the the fact that there's a substitution there is absolutely true another thing he says um, so when he's doing his little internal monologue where he says this is what I should have done um, he says please god please give me just one last
0: ounce of strength
2: I won't run away from things
0: anymore From tomorrow, I'll look at people's faces. From tomorrow, I'll listen to their voices. From tomorrow, I promise to do things right.
1: Please, God, give me just one more ounce of strength. I won't run from my challenges in my life. From tomorrow, I'll look at everyone's face. I'll listen to everyone's voice from tomorrow. I'll do everything properly from tomorrow. And I think it's so interesting that he in this moment where he's in a lot of ways thinking about her and what's happening to her one of his responses is i'm going to treat everyone better (laughs) and that that part of redemption for him is not just being forgiven for what he did to her but it's changing his attitude toward the entire world, which also means changing his attitude toward himself. And it reminds me of uh, in The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky, there's this huge theme of the idea that the only way to have peace with the world is to ask the entire world for forgiveness for all sins (laughs) committed by everyone ever, to take all the sins of the world upon yourself and to ask forgiveness of those sins and to forgive everyone in the entire world for all of those same sins. That you ask forgiveness for all and you give forgiveness for all. And there's a quote, so Alyosha, who's the <clears throat> this novice who wants to be a monk and... Uh, is trying to learn how to, how to be a good Christian, how to exist in the world. Um, he has this spiritual conversion moment, and it says, he wanted to forgive everyone and for everything, and to ask forgiveness. Oh, not for himself, but for all and for everything, as others are asking for me. And I think that's partially what uh, Shoya is experiencing in this moment, this, this realization that he has to ask forgiveness of all from all. <laughs> And that he has to give forgiveness for those same things. And that's what it means to look at everyone's face and to listen to everyone's voice and to do everything properly from tomorrow is that he's going to have that experience. And actually, that relates back to the church. Obviously, Dostoevsky was uh, devoutly Russian Orthodox. And there is a, I don't want to say a ritual, but something that the church does every single year on a particular day. It's called forgiveness vespers. And you go up to a stranger in the church, or at least someone who's not not a family member, not someone you know, and you ask for forgiveness, and this stranger says, I forgive you, and then you switch places, and the other person says, ask for forgiveness, and you say, I forgive you. Um, and I, I think that relates to this fact that he, that, that Shoya, knows that being redeemed for what he did to this one person means being redeemed and forgiven by the entire world that he has offended the entire world in this one action and that the only way to make it better is to live is to live
0: and to live differently and and that happens i can't and you can see that happening as kind of like a divine action of grace when when he's walking through the festival and all of a sudden Almost spontaneously, all of the exes fall off of everyone's faces. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a really emotional scene. um, But it's the scene where he understands it, where he's given this moment of clarity.
1: And he gets to live.
2: Something that I like is that um, he says, you know, uh, starting tomorrow, I'll, I'll look everybody in the eye and all of that. And then he wakes up and he still doesn't want to do it. Right, it's still against, you know, his mm-hmm. nature. Um, which I really like that it wasn't like an instantaneous change. That he still even was avoiding eye contact with some of the people from whom had like he had already, you know, removed the exes from, but he still didn't want to look at them. Um and after after addressing them head on, he then asked them Will you will you walk in the festival with me? Because I want to, I I want to I want to go to the the festival, and then that is when you know after after doing looking all of his friends in the eye and listening to what they have to say, does he make that make that drive again? Where he's gonna he says okay. Now, I will look everyone in the eye and I will you know, open up my ears to
0: everyone. I think that's a really good thought to end on. I think so. <laughs> well, thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, thank you for joining us on our discussion, John Luke, and enlightening us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, we'll see you in a couple weeks.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Martell podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliable narratorspodcast.wordpress.com or email us at unreliable at gmail.com. That's unreliable narrator at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by Raymond Dokopil and Sophie Klomperens. Our guest speaker was John Luke Dokopil, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomparens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing Agatha Christie's classic mystery thriller, And Then There Were None. Until then, friends, da matane! I know you can see Something inside The one part of me That I cannot hide so much more in